0: So all this just came and and just swept away that entrepreneurial flair, which of course rail privatisation was was there to, to encourage.
1: Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week has led some of the biggest independent businesses the transport sector has seen in recent decades. Prism Rail was the king of commuting in the 1990s, while his management buyout of Blazefield Bus Group created the highly regarded business now branded TransDev. But despite spending much of his life as an entrepreneur, creating and building businesses, he ended his career leading the bus portfolio for one of the biggest transport PLCs, First Group. Giles Fernley, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast.
0: Thank you, Thomas. Delighted to be be here.
1: So you have an astonishing range of experience of this sector, both bus and rail, which is comparatively unusual behind you. When were you happiest?
0: Great, great question. I'm hugely fortunate in that I've always enjoyed going to work worked with some phenomenal people um, and and uh, in, in a business that I truly believed in and that was you know, both bus and rail public transport um, so Cam myself was hugely fortunate um, the adrenaline of running um, a management buyout um, was, was was extraordinary. Um, I'll to talk a little bit more in, in a few moments um, the early day days of being involved in rail at the start of rail franchising um, was an opportunity I never expected terrified me um at the outset but was um was quite phenomenal in in what we were able to achieve and just what was going on at the time and how rail was was turning on his head and then you know, i have you, you very kindly of what you said there you know very very career i never expected to end it um working for plc as i did with first um, first group running their bus division but when the approach came it was an opportunity i just couldn't resist because i knew there there was so much opportunity um, to to create a better business from where it was 10, 11 years ago. And that has been, whilst it's been difficult, some very, um, very tough times, it has been extraordinarily um, rewarding in seeing how the uh, the business was able to really begin to focus back on its people and its customers.
1: So, yeah, tell me a bit about the MBO, going right, right back to that stage, because that must have been an extraordinary time. Tell, tell me a bit about how that came about and what it's like to go through that.
0: Yes, I was working at the time. Um, I started in the local authority background. I, I moved then to the state national bus company. I was um, ambitious, and uh, I, I knew that the quickest way to move forward was um, was 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 you know to, to keep moving and 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 going up the ladder. I didn't um, come through a graduate training scheme or anything, and I was with the state um, national bus company and um, had just had, and this is extraordinarily fortunate timing. Um, just had a promotion from um, East Yorkshire Motor Services, now part of the, uh, the go-ahead group in Hull, to um, West Yorkshire Road Car Company, they, bus companies had grand names in those days, didn't they? Road Car. Company <laughs> just. Um, as um, company secretary finance director in, gosh, a long time ago now, 1985. And within a month of landing, the shape of bus privatization um, was set and businesses were going to be sold individually um which was a great opportunity um and i then um as fd um had the opportunity of leading a management bid for that business in early 1987 just to the point of deregulation so everything was happening at once in the bus sector at the time really scary stuff we we're losing a huge amount of public funding um at a time when uh, the businesses were were moving into the private sector and i um find what I'm about to say, really strange, but with hindsight, absolutely right. Um, I was not successful in that management by our bid, myself, and my colleagues. And I say that because that business at the time needed so much um, work doing to it. Um, we we prior to um, deregulation in late 86, um, 40% of that business's turnover had come from the public purse and that reduced to about 20% overnight. A huge amount of surgery needed to be done to the networks, um, to terms and conditions of staff, employees for efficiencies and, and the like, and we needed a strong backer behind us to be able to fund the way through that. Three years on, when the hard work was done and we had a business that, whilst I think at the time was still just loss making, could see clearly a route to success, um, the then owner um, wanted to sell it, and second time round, I led a management buyout.
1: How much risk did you take on personally in that buyout very um,
0: Second mortgage and raided the, uh, the savings bank as well, as did um, another of my colleagues, George Wild, who, who joined me in that. Um, but, it, you know, this was 1991. Management buyouts fundraising was so much easier than it is today. So much easier. You know, we had um, two or three funders um, competing with us to, to be our backers and the rest. So, yeah, it, it was scary. Of course, it was scary, second mortgage and the rest of it. But um, we believed in our business and it wasn't that difficult to achieve.
1: As someone who's founded a startup, which is not the same thing, but it's similar, um, people talk about bravery. And I've always said to people that it it isn't a question of bravery at all, because when you do it, you absolutely believe it's going to be a massive success. And therefore, the brave thing would be not doing it and foregoing what feels like that opportunity.
0: Now, I was so, so right. Um, So, so right. And that... Just fast-forwarding, I'll come back to this um, sort of nineteen um, nineties time in a moment. But when I was offered the role at first, um, I just knew if I turned it down, I would always kick myself because I knew there was such opportunity, and I, I took it um, and didn't look didn't look back. And back to the nineties, I think actually our bravest decision. We, we knew we really needed to transform a moribund bus business that had very poor public perception. Um, Still losing customers, our staff and we invested hugely in the fleet Um, and we borrowed every penny we could from leasing companies, every pound we could to buy fleet and eight, nine years on, we had the most modern bus company bus fleet in the UK. from a situation where we, we started probably with an average fleet age of 12 and he paid off he paid off hugely in terms of um perception not just with our customers but with local authorities with our staff because they could see we believed in the business and therefore they began to believe in it and um passengers customers came to us it was, it was a great great time but that was those early years in the 1990s were the the scariest when we were well, you know, we've already bought 60 buses this year, but, you know, can we stretch it to 100? Um, I'm exaggerating, but that was the sort of decisions and nearly always said, yeah, we're going to stretch it.
1: Was it probably not a coincidence that you were a relatively small independent mm-hmm. business um, as opposed to the huge wave of consolidation? Because while you were doing what you were doing, you know, the businesses that became Arriva and First Group and Stagecoach were consolidating to a huge degree. And you were slightly apart from that. And you got this you know, very modern fleet and this reputation was that a coincidence?
0: I, I, yeah I, we turned down um, many many approaches um, for very very many years because we you know, we enjoyed what we were doing and believed in it and yeah we did not want to get too large we had a we had an operation in London um, when we created Blazefield and we had operations in Hertfordshire as well as those which were better known for perhaps in, in Yorkshire we then had a, a fantastic opportunity presented when Brian Suter suggested to me one day in a service station on the M1 that we might like to buy um, their East Lancashire operations um, centred on Burnley, backburn and Bolton. Um, first, that was a not insignificant acquisition, increasing our scale by about 40%, but again, a, a huge opportunity to, to apply our principles across um, the border into, into Lancashire from, from West Yorkshire. And we took it. Um, but at that point, we still had operations in Hertfordshire and London, and we were finding it was quite difficult to keep our arms wrapped all around the business. And we were beginning to to lose the touch and feel that we believed had helped us to be successful to date. And we therefore quite rapidly sold out in London, sold out in Hertfordshire and concentrated on the Yorkshire, Lancashire.
1: And then the next obvious solution is to create the largest group of commuter rail companies in the country. Um, <laughs>
0: Um, tell, whole, tell me where that
1: came from then. Yeah,
0: that, that was quite extraordinary. I mean, obviously, rail privatisation had been quite a time in its formation, although it um, then happened in a rush before um, before the um, 1997 election. And uh, for some time, never ex- expected to get involved, but was aware that some bus company colleagues, um, others who had led management buyouts across the country, were looking And um, in one of those sort of pub. Conversations for us from different um, of MBO teams um, who had led those teams got together and said, "No, okay, let's um, let's have a go here. We've something to bring to rail here. Probably being a big-headed at the time. Certainly, I think um, those in the rail industry certainly thought the bus industry was being very big-headed in in entering at that time. Um, but we thought we had something. So, um, blazefield had come a long way. Um, I was no longer fretting about the second mortgage. Um, we got steady." Flow of profit, and I had the opportunity of stepping back from that and leaving it to Stuart to, to to run the show. and And four of us got together um, for about two years before franchising started. Created um, Prison Rail as a shell company, employed um, somebody to who knew about um, rail to to help supporters. and we we used an eighteen month period to understand rail, um, to understand the privatisation process, to begin to build. Um, contacts and hopefully some reputation uh, as to our enthusiasm to to start bidding for rail franchises. But if I'm honest, when we started back in 1994, our ambition was to win one, and we ended up winning four. Um, We were helped massively by the incoming, uh, what was the incoming Labour government, Labour opposition at the time, who were deriding rail privatisation and indeed Claire Shaw, the then shadow secretary, the state for transport was going around the city um, saying, um, to institutions that, you know, you'd be blackballed if you invest in, in this privatised rail business. And as a result, a number of players who might have been bidders perhaps had second thoughts. We had nothing to lose. We stayed the course. And uh, when the bidding season started in late 1995 um, through to ending in early 1997, we won um, four of the the uh, the rail four of the 25 rail franchises that were on offer. Um, far more successful than we ever anticipated um, but we went for it and it was extraordinary experience but then being involved in those early days as um, the passenger sector um, came out of, of the stage of clutches and were able to and managers management teams were able to show their full potential and start investing and doing stuff that they knew would um, would build um patronage and that's just what we did.
1: So what was different about the rail sector that you joined then in the late 90s compared to the rail sector that exists today? Yeah. I imagine quite a bit.
0: Quite a bit. <laughs> the most eye-dropping when I, I say this to people is that franchise bids at that time were no more than one and a half inches thick, with no appendices or anything. It was a very straightforward pitch. Um and uh, and the franchise agreements themselves that came from that were probably no more than three inches thick um contrast that with today and myself and my colleagues with professional advisors bid for 18 of the 25 royal franchises were shortlisted on 12 and one four for a total fee bill of 3.2 million pounds whereas today you wouldn't get shortlisted for 3.2 million on one franchise it just and when you finally paid. put it in
1: your bid it would be delivered in the lorry
0: Yes, indeed. Um, the change is, is phenomenal. Um, there was a lot of learning going on. Of course, there was a huge urgency to get this through before the early nineteen ninety seven election, um, and uh, and 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 then. So that, that, that's a, you know, a little bit about the structure. But when we got in there, the railway, of course, had been uncontracting um, for so many years, and that was the, the mindset. Um, but it meant for those you know, of us and all the franchise owners were the same, you know, we had to grow the businesses to succeed because we've committed to franchise payments or or um, premiums or or, or or reducing subsidy or whatever. And the only way out was okay, some cost efficiencies, but was was to grow the business. So our whole focus was there. But the opportunity was there because there was capacity to do that. There was you know capacity on the on the network and not just off peak times. Um, there was um, capacity on very many of the trades, particularly off peak. Um, and we began to market and we began to position the business to become you know, attractive to, to recruit new customers. And um, some of the stuff we did in the first, and we could do things very quickly because it was not as complex. Yes, still so many industry parties, but because the capacity was there, decisions were be taken so much quicker. Within 12 months, um we had um we had in- doubled the off-peak. Um, frequencies of all the what we call inner-suburban services on the West Anglia Great Northern network to Hertfordshire and we're seeing three to four times um, patronage growth on those services. Um, we had changed engineering patterns by doing a deal with our engineers on the commuter franchises so that we effectively maintained trains at weekends so we increased fleet utilization from something like 82 to about 93% um, within a year and we use that to strengthen peak trains so we could we could obviously carry more people and we did. Um, We noticed on West Anglia Great Northern um, that whilst we had a a pretty reasonable evening, late evening network, um, hardly anyone was shuffling. Um, Didn't take long to find out because people were scared. It wasn't a good environment on a driver only train. So on the whole of the West Anglia Great Northern evening network um, for a cost that in railway terms was really diddly squat, um, we put security guards on. And it wasn't long before we were strengthening those trains from four to eight car. So we, we we were able to do things and get on with it. And we had we inherited hugely capable experienced management teams who had an appetite to work with us to do that.
1: And do you think that that culture, you know, thin bids, able to get things done quickly, yeah. You know, Progress, innovate. You know, could that have continued, or do you think that that was a reflection of this moment in time where there was latent demand and excess capacity, and somehow they would never been put together before? For
0: all sorts of reasons, the railway was going to become more complicated, and using up that spare capacity is is one of those factors. Also, and and very tragically, there was the whole yeah maybe out of of awful train crashes. Um, you know, like Grove, um the Hatfield one, um, and and others, which came, unfortunately, in quick succession, which created, you know, nervousness, and in some cases paralysis and exposed rail track, as it then was with shortcomings and his lack of knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. So all this just came and, and just swept away, you know, that entrepreneurial flair, which of course rail privatisation was, was there to, to encourage. And it's just never recovered from there, has it?
1: You then joined um, first, so you then had this very different experience Mm -hmm. of joining a very well-established business, certainly no issue with government, um, it was an entirely deregulated business, but that I think surprised a lot of people when you took that job uh, because the first bus business didn't look like uh, Blazefield, shall we say?
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, I mean, I, I knew there was huge opportunity that first bus was missing. Um, and I, I operated it up against um, first particularly in, in Yorkshire for very many years and we had gained at first expense and it wasn't us being you know competitively aggressive it's just you know business had been handed on a plate which we could make a success of and which first had deemed they couldn't oops, and so forth and you know I, I knew I, at the time I was um, um, well, I right been we were heavily involved in confederation of passenger transport, (CPD), the industry's trade association, I was president and then chairman and you know I could see time and again um, at meetings and so forth which that first just weren't at the time playing um, to the level that they could have been as the principal UK operator um, and so I couldn't resist the challenge and I you know I believe I went in um, with my eyes wide open that this was going to be a, a struggle. But as I said a few minutes ago, I knew if I turned it down, I'd always have kicked myself because I just knew there was that opportunity to take. And I you know, believe in the bus model. Um, and I knew that first had a, a great team of people who were possibly not able to, to, to operate to their full potential and we could bring others in. And that's just what we, we did. It was a long process to turn the business. Um, you, you mentioned and rightly there weren't the same issues with central government in, in Boston Rail because it's irregulated, but there were quite huge issues with local authorities um, who would become increasingly disillusioned with first um, for regularly, perhaps three times a year, increasing fares at the same time as um, reducing network coverage um, and and probably not always running um, high levels of, of punctuality. And the whole thing was you know, was, was a, a toxic mess. And uh, I think my arrival, you know, others say, gave us gave us a little bit of breathing space because something must be going to you know, happen. Giles wouldn't have joined if, if he didn't believe, you know, we could change this. And uh, if, if I think, okay, one, one of you know pieces that for the team I'm, I'm proudest with, and it wasn't just single handed, tremendous team working with me, we really did transform right across the piece that local authority trust in first as an operator, which opened so many doors to partnerships um, and, uh, and, and and understanding.
1: One of the questions that I'm fascinated by is why haven't the big groups been the, the leaders of you know, ideas and innovation in this sector? If you look at retail, for example, you know, you've got Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda. Mm. Yes, they're being disrupted by Little and um Aldi but every time there was something new to do they jumped on it you know it, it I think it's general general consensus is that online delivery doesn't actually make the supermarkets any money but they all jumped into it because they all felt they needed to be the first they needed to maintain market share they needed to show that they could do this to stop someone else coming in and doing it and it's a similar structure a small group of big you know a small peer group of large operators could have been the the Tesco and the Sainsbury's of transport, but it, it they never quite felt like they lived up to that potential. They felt like they coasted. And you know, if you read the national bus strategy, it feels like a great description of how to run a bus company, but it's actually the government that's written that, which feels a bit of an embarrassment. Why, why do you think the big groups in general across the board haven't fulfilled that potential? if you if you agree they haven't?
0: yeah, no, I mean I absolutely get your challenge here. Um, and something that has blighted the industry really since deregulation, is this continuous um, argument around regulational deregulation, ownership, and, and so forth. Um, and it's sometimes just got in the way, and it has resulted in the big groups being easy, you know, easy meat, if you like, for um, easy for easy for certain politicians to kick and to deride, and sometimes to ignore some of the good that has been going on. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, totally defends, but it is a background that has got in the way, which, you know, your knowledge of their supermarkets just isn't there. Um, so it, it's sometimes been quite difficult to trumpet some of the successes and, you know, question there has been a lot if you were to you know do a deep dive and look back at what the groups have done in terms of experimenting in terms of investment they really have led the way but sometimes it's just not being pictured and painted in a national way and of course buses are so localized um it is harder to shout about what's going on in Sheffield to people who live in Cornwall as an example it is it is just more difficult although yeah know, yeah, I know you'll say to me in a moment that the groups could have done more to to do that and you know we've very often failed to deliver what the politicians have been demanding, particularly around ticketing and pricing and coordination. Not because we didn't understand the demand, not because perhaps in the bus business, we didn't think, yeah, that would actually be a great idea, but because the originally the Competition Commission, now the CMA, wouldn't have allowed it
1: you've got extraordinary experience of achieving growth in a whole series of different mm. businesses and different structures of businesses so from your experience what works in terms of achieving growth and is that the same as achieving returns because obviously you have worked for yes. shareholders but you've also been the shareholder
0: right great great point there um you've got to be patient no no question at all um I mean, growth does come um, yeah, I, I, I've worked in and been responsible for, for a whole range of networks that have seen growth year after year after year, and that's what counts. And you know, it is easy to, to achieve growth in one year by cutting fares or, or increasing frequencies, but it's got to be sustainable. You know, your point there is it's got to be ultimately be profitable and you've got to continue and continue with it. And that's where it, it gets difficult, but it, it can be done. And there are numerous examples you talked. I know you had a great interview with James Freeman, um, who had clearly run the Bristol and Bath operations. For first, for very many years, hugely successfully. that That's a fantastic case study, but it is by no means the only one. But very often, yes, you have got to invest and before you get the return. Um, just you know, um reflecting for a there were a couple of examples that we just come to mind where you didn't have to wait. Um, one was very soon after I joined first in Manchester, and we had there an extraordinarily expensive fare structure. Um, losing passengers at the rate of about 15% a year, and the business was just spiraling down um, because fares increases applied three times. Our fares were way above other operators in the area. Um, our service performance was poor. And at a year in, side of the job, we reduced day and weekly tickets by around about 28%. Didn't need to advertise it, the local press did that for us. Headlines day after day, because they just couldn't believe the first was actually responding to customers' demands. And in week two, we had seen 14% growth. Now that you know, mathematicians, accountants uh, listening to this will say, well, that hasn't paid for it. No, it did take about a year to get the growth over around about 30%, which was what was necessary to break even. But um, the reaction to that was, was phenomenal. And we mentioned Um, If we go back to, know now about 2002, 2003, when we first started putting um, leather-seater buses on the famous Route 36, in Riffin, Leeds and Harrogate, um, Riffin, Harrogate and Leeds. Um, they we were determined they would be eye-catching, they're very different. Um, nobody expected to get on a bus and sit on the leather seat. Um, so much of them was different and we've had a lot of local publicity alongside. Um, there we saw, again, within a couple of weeks, um, growth of, of over 10% and it continued because we made a stark difference. But they were yeah, easy things to do longer term. Um, it is about the fundamentals of running a bus business and, you know, the operator's got to do its part, um, very high levels of sustained performance, a network that absolutely fits the bill and is alive to people's travel needs, um, and a fleet that is, is fit, for, fit for purpose, the local authority has got to do its part, clearly that C word in tackling congestion, and, uh, and generally in wanting and being seen to support the bus and the bus operators even in a a growing network you will still have routes that year on year are losing patronage because the demographics have changed employment opportunities have moved um, whatever Um, that's no bad thing you just have to be alive to that and adjust accordingly and reinvest resources perhaps where there is more growth Um, and in declining networks you will still have certain routes that are growing almost certainly um, it's just the mix um determines whether it's it's, it's a plus or a minus but it it is yeah you've got you've got to prepared to to invest for up to two years to to get a, a financial return um, but there is so much experience out there of what works and what doesn't it's a question of you know, using that and applying it to the local area and being prepared to 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 uh to work with local authorities then prepared to work with you to uh, to deliver
1: And it's interesting you mentioned their patience and the need to invest over time. Um, And you mentioned James Freeman. And when I spoke to James, he said, this whole question of public, private, local authority, ownership doesn't matter. Fundamentally, wherever you work and whoever owns it, you're expected to make a profit. And in the public sector, the word profit sometimes has a different name, but fundamentally, you're still expected to cover the costs and more of running your bus service. But one thing he did say was that he he felt there was this pressure in a PLC environment that was incredibly short term Mm. and that the ultimate owners of the PLCs didn't back patience and long-term thinking and obviously you were a level closer to the city you you were further closer to the city and further from the buses than James was so what was what was your perspective on that?
0: Yeah all you've said uh, there is something that is is often suggested and and alleged and there was no question I mean the the city is a is a tough place Um, but above all Um, A PLC at board level, shareholders and investors need to have confidence that um, profits will flow and profits will be sustainable. And I think the sustainable piece is so key here. Um, And uh, I wouldn't have been able to do with the team an awful lot of the stuff that I did last at first um, group, um, if there hadn't been trust. And there hadn't been an understanding that we needed to invest and to risk to create that sustainable um, margin going forward. But yes, you absolutely have to have your eye to that. And of course you do. And it's not just to satisfy the city. You need it for investment. Um, We've got to keep investing. Um, The most successful bus companies in the longer term are those that have a a healthy investment cycle. Um, There were years within first, we got huge levels of of capital investment because it was understood if we really were going to deliver the margins that were expected the following year and the year after, we had to have the kit to be able to do it.
1: A theory, I've got a theory, which I'd love to share with you and just see what your thoughts are on it, which are that one of the challenges that transport and particularly buses have faced over the recent decades is that the city sees transport groups as like utilities, and expect them to have a, a a regular regulated stream of income that you can switch on and off in response to investment. And actually bus companies are consumer businesses that need to engage human beings to make decisions. Mm. And that can require a different approach and a different way of thinking and a, a longer term strategy that can then generate much bigger rewards if given time to roll. Does that Does that sound right to you or not?
0: Yes, it does. Um, and if we go back to um, privatisation, deregulation in in the late nineties and early two thousands, buses were widely known in the city as cash cows, um, because our cash flow is great. Um, you know, the obvious, um, passengers pay either in advance and increasingly in advance, or, or on the on the journey. Um, local authority, central government funding flows on a on a regular pattern, um, no bad debts. So you know, the, the initial city enthusiasm to invest in bus companies, which was demonstrated to extraordinary high PEs, um, came from that cash cow mentality. Um, it got more difficult and the heady you know, margins of the early mid 2000s you know, began to evaporate during the, um, the recession in, was it, I don't know, was it 2007, 2008, something like that. And uh, it's been much tougher since. But yes, they I think the city does like to categorize
1: so leadership of the of the customer proposition um, is something that you've always been responsible for in the businesses that you've led. But now it's kind of moving to government. You know, we've seen with the national bus strategy where they've written down exactly what they see a good bus service as being, and have basically asked local authorities to work with bus companies to send that list back up to them um, in the form of a strategy. And I suspect we're going to see something not dissimilar with Williams when that comes out on rail. So given where we've ended up, is that a A good thing if the government take responsibility they've got to deliver the outcomes needed to make it happen Um, and how do you see the 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 structure of the industry and the the big groups progressing in this environment
0: yeah um i mean it is it is just great the bus is is getting so much political attention but if we lose the opportunity for the customer proposition to be managed and adapted to local level then we've all lost it the, the most successful networks are where there is that strong local authority relationship partnership or that's a you know a too oft used word it means so much um the way it is understood um that you know every party has a role to play here local authorities tackling congestion but operators in relation to understanding and growing the customer base
1: so if you could uh, i've got two final questions if you could now, in the environment we're now in, with the Williams Review coming through and the National Bus Strategy, if you could choose one of the jobs you've done, um, running first, running Blazefield or running Prism, which would you most want to be in at this particular moment? Um,
0: I think it, it would be running Blazefield or something about ilk. Two, two, two reasons that I come down to that. Firstly, bus free rail. And... Um, yeah, I'm mean, really excited, interested to hear what comes from the Williams review finally. Um, but um, you know, go back to what I said a few moments ago, bus will you know continue to be um, a much more immediate business where you can influence, get on, and, and that excites me, always has, always does. It doesn't mean my rail time wasn't exciting, but it's it's different, and I wouldn't want to lose that the opportunity of making a difference quickly. Um and then Blazefield v first, hugely conscious that in delivering these EPs and all that goes with it Um, time is short, money is short so time is short, got to get on with it, a huge amount of work to make the right decisions, create the right partnership models, um, get the right understanding on both sides of the fence, authority and operator and that is going to be an extraordinarily time-consuming task for everyone involved for a long time and um, at first, the teams there will be doing it. I'm sure doing it very successfully as they will in the other groups. But I think at this stage, now looking back, I'd rather be you know, closer to the sharp end in personally trying to uh, to mould um, what, my experience, would work.
1: And very final question. What would your advice be to the big groups in the context of this new world, given right. that you have experience of running the bus portfolio of one of them?
0: Remember, always the busses. Need to be managed locally, and I think that's ever actually been more important now as we come out of COVID, pull passengers back, and and work out networks, EPS, and and, and so forth. So really, um, you know ensure that that local management teams have sufficient strength to cope with what's coming to them. Because after all, making the success of these EPS will make a success of those bus businesses. The bus operators need to stand up and be prepared to to commit. Um, to enable politicians to do their part
1: fantastic is there anything i haven't covered in this conversation
0: i don't think so i think that's a, a pretty good uh, month we've been hugely enjoyable uh, talking with you thomas you the opportunity. Brilliant.
1: thank you so much that was great thank you very much indeed well that concludes the freewheeling podcast for this week thank you very much indeed to giles fernley my guest and to you for listening If you get a few minutes, do jump onto Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the Freewheeling Podcast and give us a quick rating review. And of course, make sure you're back next week for another edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. Goodbye.